Good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, my name is Chapo and I am the pastor here at C4 and I'm glad that you are here today. Now, before I say anything else, I do need to share something that I saw on Facebook yesterday in case you didn't see it. And that, that is, uh, where's Kate gone? Kate's up the back. Kate is having another baby. So let's celebrate with her right now and clap because this is awesome. And it's... Is it, and it's a boy. It's another boy. And that's good for our church because we've got tons of girls and not as many boys. So that is good news. How cool is that? So congratulations, Kate and Josh, who's not here with us today. But that is fantastic news. So Christmas is upon us, as you can tell by the trees. Carlia said that she loves Christmas. Does anyone else love Christmas? Yep. Where's my bar humbug people? Where is my Christmas loathers? There's got to be a... I'm not surprised, Ian. Dave, yeah, and it, Bethany, I know, yeah. Dean, no, not a fan. Okay, that's surprising. Pete, no, okay. Rod, all right, we've got a few bar humbugs here, not big Christmas fans. Um, Christmas just seems to come around too quickly. I know every year we say that the year's gone fast, but boy, 2019, I just feel like there was something different about this year. So my sermon this morning is called The Other Side of Waiting. We live on the other side of what people were waiting for for a very long time. If you would like a Bible this morning, I'll get you to put your hand up nice and high in the air so that you can read along in the Scriptures with us and someone would deliver a Bible directly to you. But while they are delivering Bibles, I want to talk about this. I remember as a kid that Christmas seemed to be a lot bigger of a deal than it is now. Does anyone else feel like that or is it just me? When I was younger, I feel like Christmas was just more significant and maybe that's because I'm a grown-up now or maybe it's because something has actually changed. I don't know. I remember that as soon as it hit December, every morning, every TV station would have Christmas cartoons on every day and every night there'd be Christmas movies on. Now you're lucky to get a Christmas movie on Christmas Eve. It's like no one is that worried anymore. Whatever happened to Christmas Beatles? Where did Christmas beetles go? I saw one Christmas beetle this week and I got so excited because I had forgotten that they even existed. I was like, a Christmas beetle. I read that in the 1920s in Sydney, there used to be Christmas beetles washed all along the beach because they would drown because the branches that they were on would get so heavy from the weight of the beetles that they would bow down into the water and they would all die. Such an incredible amount of beetles, but where have they all gone? I remember all December, so excited, all the build-up, waiting for Christmas Day, and you'd wake up every morning thinking, oh, it's another day that's not Christmas. When will Christmas hurry up and come? Because I really liked Christmas. Christmas was exciting. And then finally, December 25, you'd wake up that morning and it was time to run out to the lounge room and see what Santa bought from Golo for you this year and was in the lounge room. And it was exciting opening presents. You got to eat lollies all day. It was an awesome time. You ate all food all day. The leftovers were fantastic for dinner. You went to bed, sunburnt, full, but merry. But then you woke up the next morning, empty disappointed because that thing that you'd been looking forward to all this time has just come and gone like that. Does anyone sympathize with that? Do you remember that morning as a kid and waking up the next morning and just like, ah, oh, it's a whole nother year. 
until Christmas again. It was like the horriblest day. It was the worst. We live on the other side of Christmas, but not the Christmas, the annual holiday that we celebrate, the first Christmas, the first coming of the Messiah. We live on the other side of that. Now, the Christmas story, I think, is one of the most beautiful and rich stories of, of heaven and humanity just clashing together and creating something wonderful. But the Christmas story doesn't begin with a baby in a manger. By the way, who knows what a manger is? Does anyone actually know? What is it? What is it, Rod? Like a what? Oh, not quite. What? A what? A bed of hay? Feeding trough. Yeah, a feeding trough was the, you know... If, is anyone like me? You sung away in a manger your whole life and you just had no idea what a manger was? It was just like, you know, whatever. The, the best translation I came up with was a feeding trough because I guess away in a trough doesn't sound near as poetic and lovely. Um, but yeah, yeah. So the story of Christmas doesn't begin with a baby in a manger or shepherds in a field or a star in the sky or wise men or a pregnant virgin. The story of Christmas begins in a beautiful garden with the first two human beings that ever lived. And those two human beings had this incredibly open connection with God. And they walked with God and he gave them all good things. And that was all great until one day an evil being who took the form of a snake came and fooled those two humans and told them that the things that they had believed about God were false. All the wonderful things they believed about who God was was a lie. And as a result of being fooled, they decided to do the only thing that God had asked them not to do, and they ate the f specific fruit of the specific tree. And as a result, the connection with God that they had was lost. And the consequences were incredible. And they found themselves full of shame and regret and brokenness as a result of severing that connection that they had with God. But right in the midst of that situation and that experience of brokenness, God came and met with them there. And God came and offered forgiveness to them, but not just forgiveness, he offered them a promise. And I want you to come with me in your Bibles to Genesis 3, verse 15, and if you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 2. And we're going to have a look at that promise. Genesis chapter 3, and verse... 15. And this is the promise that God makes to the woman and also to this snake. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the promise he makes to the woman in this bizarre story is that the day will come when a descendant of yours will crush the head of this one who brings suffering. He will crush his head. A descendant of yours will come. And the promise he makes to the snake is that your days are numbered. It's not a threat, it's a promise. He says, your head will be crushed. But it tells us that even though one is going to come who will crush the head of this snake, it won't come without pain, it won't come without grief and loss because the snake will strike the man on the heel. 
And this story, this promise gets picked up and it becomes a core part of what it meant to be a Jewish person. Every prophet wrote about the day that this character would come, this redeemer would come from God who was going to bring an end to suffering and to evil. Every poet wrote songs about it. The Messiah will come. He will be with us. Everyone looked forward and longed for the day that they would be able to see this promise fulfilled, that an offspring of Eve's, a descendant would be born and he would be God with us and he would challenge evil. The name that is given to this one is simply the anointed one. In Hebrew, we call that the Messiah. In Greek, we call it Christ. It's the exact same word, just in two different languages, the Messiah or the Christ. Now, I don't know if I've told you this story before or not. See, this is a big week for me. Tomorrow's my birthday. Turning 20... Not to, ooh. 36. 36 I am tomorrow. Um, but there's an even better event that's coming after that, and that's on Wednesday. It's our 10-year anniversary. Married for 10 years. So... That's pretty good, eh? Not as good as Rod. Rod told me he's got his 40-year anniversary coming up. Is that right? Yeah. In... Uh, We'll celebrate that next Sabbath because it's, yeah, that's awesome. Um, but Bethany has a ring on her finger. It's her engagement ring and it's a humble diamond, but it's the only diamond that I could afford as a theology student purchased with the sponsorship money that I was supposed to spend on my student fees. But I bought her this ring and one morning, knowing that we had an event to go to, knowing we had this theology student special day, I said, oh, I need you to come and meet me at the Swing Bridge. So at the Swing Bridge in Kurumbong, I walked across and the whole morning I was having these panic attacks thinking, what's going to happen if I drop this ring down into the water and it goes through the crack of the bridge and thinking of all the worst case scenario. But through this elaborate scheme that I set up, I presented this ring to her and asked her to marry me and she said yes. And then she put the ring on her finger and then we went to this event with the theology students and she was so happy to show everyone the ring and everyone was so excited because it was shiny and beautiful but it also meant that we had decided to become one and I remember Ray Ronfeld was there and you insisted on shaking his hand with your left hand and he said well what's wrong with your other hand and you said nothing but what's right with this one and put it right in front of his face. <laughs> Kenneth Bailey in his excellent book Jesus Through Middle East and I said this a diamond ring is admired and worn with pride, but with the passing of time, it needs to be taken to the jeweler and cleaned to restore its original brilliance. The more the ring is worn, the greater the need for occasional cleaning. And in the context of that, he goes on to say this, the more familiar we are with a biblical story, the more difficult it is to view it outside of the way it has always been understood. And the longer impression in the tradition remains unchallenged, the deeper it becomes embedded in Christian consciousness. The birth story of Jesus is such a story. And what he means by this is sometimes there are stories from the Bible that we just seem to know too well. They are told so often and we think we get it, but we never actually truly get deep into it and try to understand it. We're too familiar with it for our own good. And he says the birth story of Jesus is just like that. We get lost in the carols. We get lost in the story of a baby in a stable. And sometimes we miss this huge event that was waited upon by millions of people for thousands of years and what an incredible fulfillment to prophecy and to promise that it was. So I want you to turn your Bible now to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is on page 726 of 
if you have one of our Bibles, John chapter 1. And the book of John is different to the other Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is sort of out there on its own. You see, John includes things that the other three didn't think were important to include. And John leaves out things that the other three thought were important to include. And John says things in a very different way and has a different focus. If you have spent any time studying the New Testament, you will find this as hilarious as I did. Uh, George, Paul and John up the front there singing in harmony and Ringo in the back out of time doing his own thing. Well, it's just like that. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John's up the back sort of just, I don't care what you guys are doing, I'm doing my thing. So John chapter 1. I want you to come to verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse 14, and it says this, The Word became flesh. Four words. The Word became flesh. That is John's version of the Christmas story. That is it in the book of John. The Word became flesh. No stable, no virgin, no wise men, no star, no manger, nothing. He is not concerned with the details, just the way that it fulfilled this ancient promise. The Word became flesh. That's all that you get. And then it goes on, to, on from that and says, And made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. From there, you get nothing about Jesus' childhood. The other gospel writers thought it was important to include that. John was like, no, nope, let's just get to the point. He was born, he became flesh because he was fulfilling something great. So from there, I want you to jump down to verse 29. He jumps straight into the scene where Jesus is there, where John the Baptist is at the river. And in verse 29, it says this. So John the Baptist is doing his thing and then he sees Jesus and he says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. He identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, just like the Lamb that was sacrificed in the temple. But the unique thing about this Lamb is it doesn't just pay for the sin of the one who could bring the Lamb. He says this sin, he takes away the sin of everyone. He is the Lamb of God and he was before me and he is more than me. And then he says it again, but something strange happens. In verse 35, come down to verse 35 in John 1. And it says, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. So he's there again, but two of his disciples are with him this time. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So poor John the Baptist in this moment. Like he says, Look, there's the Lamb of God. They're just like, See you later, we're going with him. And off they go and start following Jesus immediately. It goes on to say, when they're um, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Meaning like, we want to come and stay with you. Where are you going? We're going to come as well. Where are you staying? And he goes on to say, come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, whatever happened with these two guys and Jesus that afternoon must have been incredibly significant, because this is what happens next. Verse 40, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. The first thing, he, the first thing Andrew did 
was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. This is what he says. The first thing he does is he goes and finds his brother and says, we have found the Messiah. And it's really hard for us to grasp the gravity of that saying when they said that, we have found the Messiah. Without a rich understanding of this hope that they had had for thousands of years, that one day the Messiah would come, it's easy to just casually read over this, as though Andrew just goes and finds Peter and he's like, hey, Peter, you never guess who I saw today. It was the Messiah. Oh, really? That's awesome. What was he like? Pretty cool. Do you want to come and see him? Sure. And then they wander back to Jesus together. I don't think it happened like that. You see, for the Jewish people, their expectation to see Jesus come the first time can only be compared to our expectation as believers in Jesus to see him come back again. So to put it this way, Kelly, imagine Joel comes home one afternoon. He's driving the rescue truck back, parking out the front of your place, and he walks up the stairs and he says, hey, Kel, never guess what I saw on the way home? A bunch of angels, just everywhere. You're like, great. And he goes, yeah, and everything was on fire. Just cry, everything was on fire. And how do you respond? You probably faint, yeah? Or do you say, oh, I might pop out and have a look? Yeah, maybe. You see, you would either think that he was crazy or or you would be incredibly panicking, or it would be a mixture of the both. You've got to understand, for Andrew to say to Peter, we have found the Messiah, this thing that they had been longing for for so long, maybe wondering if it was ever going to happen, he has ran as fast as he can to Peter, and he gets there, and he's puffing, and he's trying to catch his breath, and he says, listen, you need to trust me. This is going to sound ridiculous, I know, this is crazy, but we have found the Messiah and brings Peter to Jesus. And in that moment, Andrew did one of the most important things that has ever been done in Christian history. He went to his brother, who is Peter. And if you know who Peter is, you know that Peter went on to become the greatest leader, the greatest preacher, and the greatest miracle worker in the Christian church. No one did the future church a bigger favor than Andrew running home to tell his brother, you need to come to Jesus. In that is this incredible lesson about faithfulness. You have no idea the impact that you will have on the future when you are faithful to what God has asked you to do. Let me explain. 20 years ago, we were at our home. My family, my mum, my siblings, and we get a knock on the door, and it's a pastor. And it's the pastor of a church that we used to be a member of a long, long time ago before my family was treated badly and left that church. And he simply said, I don't know who you are, but I found your name and address on an old church roll. I'd like to invite you to come back to church. And we did. And as a result of that invitation, I'm a pastor now. And by the grace of God, my ministry has inspired someone else to become a pastor as well, who is out doing great things. Do you get what I'm saying? All because that afternoon, he just followed that hunch. He goes, I'm going to go and knock on that door. You have no idea the impact of your faithfulness and how God will use it. So what I'm saying is, if there's a neighbor that you've been wanting to invite to your home, do it. If there's a friend that you say, for a long time I've been thinking, I should ask them to come to church, do it. If there's a taxi driver or an Uber driver that you're with and you get this hunch to say, is there anything I can pray for you this week while I pray? Just do it because you have no idea what the impact of your faithfulness will have after you are finished with that, after you're gone. 
you don't know. Here, Andrew goes and tells his brother Peter, come and see the Messiah. And he becomes a disciple and he changes the world. And I think that is fantastic. So, in this lesson, we are on the other side of waiting. We are on the other side of what they were longing to see for so long. And it's fantastic because there's so many who wanted to see and wanted to have what we have, a record of what it's like for God to live in human flesh, a record of what it's like for God to dwell with people and to be merciful and kind to others. We have that. But there's another incredible lesson that we get because of the fact that we live on the other side of this event. You see, the promise of the coming Messiah was foundational to their belief. All the people throughout the Old Testament talked about the fact that he is coming. If you'd asked a Jewish person at the time of Christ if they were looking forward to the Messiah coming, they would have said, absolutely yes. Now, at the time that Jesus walked the earth, there was four and a half million Jewish people. That's four and a half million people who would have said that we are looking forward to the Messiah coming. Yet, after Jesus came, performed his ministry and returned to heaven, there was 120 believers in the Messiah. That means that out of the four and a half million people who said, we are looking for the Messiah, 99.98% of them missed it. That is huge. That's incredible. It's easy to make a parallel between them. They had a book. They had a book full of promises about the fact that the Messiah would come and they were all looking forward to it and believed that one day, somewhere down the track, it was going to happen. Well, we're kind of similar. We're looking forward to the return of Jesus. We've got a book, and nearly every book of the New Testament has the promise that Jesus is coming back. How do we make sure that we don't miss out just like they did? How do we make sure that the same thing that happened to them doesn't happen to us? The Bible calls us to draw near, to draw close, to not know about Jesus, but to know him. He wants to know you. He is invested in you. He loves you. He wants to be connected to you. And the last thing that he would have is that you miss it just like they did. So in a minute, we're going to take a break. And after that, we're going to come back together. And I've got a number of questions as we're going to talk through some of these ideas together at our tables. So I ask you to bow your head with me in prayer as we close. And we'll be back together soon. Father God, Lord, we thank you that we live on this side of Jesus. We thank you of the picture of you that we have because Jesus lived and died and continues to live for us. Father God, help us to be faithful. Help us to um, keep our mind fixed on you. Let us not make the same mistake that was made in the past. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.